0: Well, whether you're listening here in the, in the sanctuary, or you're listening out in your cars, or you're listening to the CD or the replay uh, online, uh, just to let you know that on our website every Monday, uh, we put the copy of the program, which has the outline of the sermon. So if you uh, want, to, want to access that, you just go on one of the pages on our website, ecwesleyan.net. And you can access that. So I know many of you are listening online or listening on CD afterwards, and I uh, just want to acknowledge that and, uh, and just give you that as a resource. And glad you all t- turned your clocks ahead today. That's <laughs> you're the, you're the con- consistent ones. That's good. When you were young as a child or kid, how many of you ever said, it's his fault? Or, she hit me first. Okay? She said it first. Okay, okay. When we were caught doing something wrong growing up, our first impulse always was and always seems to be to to divert the attention from me and find someone else to blame. We learn this defense mechanism very early in life. It's called a blame game, or I'm the victim here. I'm the victim here. The following are... Accident reports, these are actual accident reports filed with the police and insurance companies from people seeking to shift the blame. They wanted to say, I'm the victim here. These are excuses that come from actual reports. First one, coming home, I drove into a wrong house and collided with a tree I didn't have. (laughs) This one, I collided with a stationary truck coming the other way. I'm just seeing how awake you guys are, okay. A pedestrian hit me and went under my car. <laughs> or this one, the guy was all over the road. I had to swerve several times before I hit him. I pulled away from the side of the road, glanced at my mother-in-law, and headed over the embankment. This, this woman said... I had been driving for 40 years when I fell asleep at the wheel and had an accident. (laughs) I was on my way to the doctors with rear-end trouble when the universal joint gave way, causing me to have an accident. (laughs) Some of these will take you guys a while, okay? Mechanics will get that better. I was taking my canary to the hospital. It got loose in the car and flew out the window. The next thing I saw was his rear end, and there was a crash. To avoid hitting the bumper of the car in front, I hit the pedestrian. My car was legally parked as it backed into the other vehicle. An invisible car came out of nowhere, struck my vehicle, and vanished. This was an interesting one. I told the police that I was not injured, but upon removing my hat, I found I had a fractured skull. The pedestrian had no way to know which way to go, so I ran him over. Okay, those, those are actual reports of, am I the victim here? These are excuses people have made for accidents. Am I the victim here? Playing, playing the blame game. We are endlessly creative in playing the victim or placing the blame. And it's genetic. You know that it's genetic. We inherited it from our ancestors. It all started with Adam and Eve. You guys know that. They disobeyed God. They they sinned, and God asked them, what did you do? And Adam's answer was, the woman you gave me made me do it. And Eve said, the serpent made me do it. And right here, right there, you have all the elements of 4,000 years of victims. Blaming God, blaming the devil, blaming someone else, blaming circumstances. Am I the victim here? That's the question. One of the great challenges we face as parents is to teach our children individual responsibility. We have to learn it first, how to take responsibility for our own actions. It starts here. It starts actually in our hearts. Shifting blame is part of what I would call arrested development. And last week, we looked at arrested development As we started this series in the book of James, we talked about how we like comfort. We like to be comfortable. But when we are comfortable all the time, we never grow up. We experience arrested development. Today, we continue in that discussion by examining our responses and dealing with trials and temptations. Today, we're going to look at a sermon entitled, Am I the Victim Here? Am I the Victim Here? I'd like you to turn with me to James 1. Still in James 1. We're going to read verses 12 to 18. It's on page 977 in the Bible in the rack in front of you. James 1, starting with verse 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When tempted, No one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights. Who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of firstfruits of all he created. James begins this section by addressing situations in which we might shift the blame. We're trying to find a scapegoat. When circumstances are tough, we get squeezed. Whatever's inside us kind of comes out experiencing tough times. And we experience tough times. Whatever's inside tends to squirt out past everything else. And we all experience tough times. We all get squeezed. And last week we talked about trials. And let's talk about, we're going to start with the trials today. Trials. James tells us in verse 12, blessed is a man who perseveres under trials. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trials. They will receive a crown of life. This is one of God's promises. you receive a crown of life. Now, there are typically two responses to trial. Two responses. The first one is a natural response to a trial. The natural response, or the first response is, I'm the victim here. We blame God, or we blame the devil. We find someone to blame. So when we experience a trial, we look for a scapegoat of some sort. And then there's the spiritual response, letter B, which is perseverance, or Patient endurance, and the result, of course, is blessing or reward. There's a a word here used, crown. It says you will have a crown of life, which is used to describe our our reward in heaven. It's not a literal crown. It's not a crowning achievement or an apex of a career. A crown of life is something that God is preparing for us, and it comes through perseverance. And the only way to, to get to this is through trials, unfortunately. The crown follows something called character development, character development. In Hebrews 12:5 through6, it says, "And you have forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when He rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those He loves and He punishes everyone He accepts as a son." When you look at it in that perspective, the trials and challenges are not indicators of punishment because we think we're having a tough time. It must be punishment. No, what, what the writer of Hebrews says, they are indicators of full sonship. They're, when you experience trials and difficult times, they're indicators that God loves you and he disciplines you. It's an indicator that we are in relationship with God the Father. See, that's a whole different perspective to look at it. When God disciplines us, it's like when our parents disciplined us. They are indicators of relationship with God the Father. And what that means is character development. The more character development, the better our crown's going to be. Great. Everybody wants that. It's moving us past the rest of development, out of our comfort zone, as we looked at last week in depth. So those are trials, and we talked a lot last week about trials. Let's talk about temptation. Roman numeral two, temptation. Verses 13 to 15 talks about that. It says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Now, there's a lot, lot in those three verses. And I'm going to try to unpack those as we go through this this morning. The trial, of course, is a test of character to purify us, which we talked about. Temptation is a test of loyalty and obedience. Tempted means to tempt to do something evil. As a lot of people say, well, doesn't, doesn't temptation come from the devil? Yes, it does. Uh, doesn't temptation also come from our nature, our human nature? Yes, it does. Then why do we blame God? Okay, that's a question. Because some people blame, and evidently they were blaming God for the temptation. How do I blame, how do we, do we blame God? That's the question. How do we do that? If only this had not happened, if only I hadn't gone, or God could have kept me from this circumstance, or I was born into this family. I didn't ask for this. I had to go to this school. This is the job God gave me. God gave me these desires. Well, you know, if we believe that God is all-powerful, we can easily blame God for our temptations. And that, that evidently was what they were doing in the New Testament church. Then we say, I'm the victim here. Well, if I'm not the victim, who's to blame for temptation? Now, there is a contest, and this is implied here, not... Explicitly, but implicitly. There's a contest between Satan and God. Now, if you are here this morning, you don't believe in Satan, um, or believe that there's a real person called Satan or the devil, uh, I challenge you to take another look. Some people think it's just a, a character of fiction a guy in a red suit and pointy tail, pointy ears, and pointy toes, just harassing children, some kind of a mythical character. Satan, though, he would like us to believe it, is not a mythical character, but a real spiritual being who acted in history and is very much alive and well, acting in the present. And, of course, you don't have to look very far to see Satan's activity. Very real in our world today. Satan is described in the Bible as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, a serpent of old, a dragon, the accuser of the brethren. He is real, and Satan does tempt us. But we can't blame the devil for all the bad things we do. The devil made me do it. No, no, no. Um, we can't blame the devil. James 1, 14 to 15 says, But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. Sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Evil desire births sin, and sin brings forth death. So basically, inside each of us, we have the seeds of our own destruction. We don't need the devil to do that. That's part of our nature. Augustine said this. He said, Satan can do no more than suggest. Only the tempted person can perform the wrong act. Now, these people say, can God tempt us? And of course, that's a question. James one thirteen says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. God does not tempt us, but he does allow us into situations where we are tempted. He does allow us to go into areas that are tempted. So temptations by Satan are suggestions, tests put into our life or mind. In order to get us to sin against God, perform evil acts, thoughts, words, or deeds. Temptation. And it's real to all of us. Every one of us experience temptation. Now let's talk about, there's some interesting word imagery here. And the first one is the birth of death. This is Roman numeral three. The birth of death. The birth of death. In verse 14 it says, each one is tempted... And it says, when after desire he is conceived, he gives birth to sin, and sin full grown gives birth to death. That's kind of a weird way to say things. Um, Well, there's a, basically he lays out a four-step sequence to sin. How does sin happen? First of all, there's the bent of our desire. There's, There's desire. And he talks about the fact there's desire. Tempted by our own evil desire. You say, that's in me? But I thought I was basically good. You know, I know that, that most of us, if you went to public school or you talked to people out in the public, they will tell you that human beings are basically... How many of you heard that growing up? Humans are basically good if we just have enough of ourselves and we will, we will turn this into nirvana and this earth will be great again. Yeah. We are tempted, however, by our own evil desire. Romans 3.10 through 12, says this. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. What? Seriously? It says there is no one who understands, there is no one who seeks God. All have turned away, together they have become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. This is called the doctrine of original sin. Basically, our natures are, we are by nature bent towards evil, bent towards evil. And in Romans five eighteen through 19, it says, Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. It explains that for justice through the disobedience of one man, Adam, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, Jesus, the many will be made sinners righteous basically it says our nature is downward it's 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 going towards evil and sin it's part of our nature and because Adam sinned it brought brought that evil on all of us don't you can't blame Adam either but that's that's our nature and then Jesus came of course to redeem that through the act of one righteous man which was Jesus so our tendency is toward evil or bad. And then we get, you add to that being baited by sin. Letter B, baited by sin. The word used is enticed. It says we are dragged away and enticed by their own evil desire. Drawn away or distracted. How many, how many of you enjoy fishing? You guys fish, you got a lot of fishermen here in Wisconsin. Okay, yeah. A lot of, a lot of people fish in Wisconsin. Um, What do you use for bait? Something the fish hate? They don't like, it's repulsive? No. We use bait for fish, something the fish crave or something they desire. And the fish swim along, they see the bait, they smell the bait, they desire the bait, and they're drawn off course. They're carried away by something attractive. It's this bait. 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 And same thing happens to us. We see something attractive. We're drawn to it. We crave it. And we're drawn off course by that bait. Satan will bait you. He will take your evil desires and entice you. What is our bait today? What entices us off the the straight and narrow path? Money, prestige, sex, drugs, pleasure. Things that are attractive, not repulsive. And what medium is used to display the bait? Usually through the eyes, so it's usually television, movies, or billboards, or the internet, or people. And there's a lot of bait out there that draws us away. This is bait that pulls us away from God, and it entices us. The word entice means drawing on our own desires, in, in 1 John two fifteen to sixteen, it says, "Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. See, we are susceptible to bait. Bait, bait, bait is out there, and we are susceptible. We're enticed by our own desires." There's an article in Time Magazine on happiness, and it talks about mind and body happiness, or the the paths to pleasure. said the pleasure center of the brain is so powerful, that is why the drug addict would rather be pleased that appetite by cocaine than sleep, or sleep, or sex. Cocaine. Speaking of addiction, they said, because drugs co-opt the body's natural high by triggering dopamine. And repeated exposure can fool the brain into craving those drugs more than any other thing. Bait, pleasure. We are baited and enticed to sin with what? With our own desires, our own lust, our desire for pleasure. We can't blame God. Don't blame the internet. Don't blame other people. It's inside of us. Desires inside of us that are used to bait us. It's inside all of us. It's the... Doctrine of original sin. And what that means is, I'm not the victim here. I'm the problem. I'm the problem. It's inside all of us. And it's common to all human beings. So we can't stand up and say, oh, you got it worse than I do. I'm, you know, no, no. It levels the playing field. It says all of sin and fall short, the glory of God. All of us have a sin problem. And when we realize that that's the internal problem... It's only then that we can find the solution to that. How do we find the solution if we don't define the problem? Then we have a a phrase talking about the birth of sin. Birth of sin. Verse 15 says, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And the word conceived is grasped together as the woman conceiving when she gets pregnant with a child. The will, this leads to lust and then Conception takes place. After conception comes birth. It's inevitable. And this is the actual language of childbirth. It's kind of interesting. says, when it says that that birth will produce sin. Birth, it's the birth of sin. Now, I remember, uh, we're talking about birth. I remember when Judy was pregnant with our first child. And we went to Lama's class and they talked about the discomfort of childbirth. And it was co- discomfortable. I, I mean, I, I, was, I was there. Um, <laughs> sorry. All the ladies go, come on. Anyway, but, but there's one thing I remember. They started talking about this uncomfortableness, and they, they didn't use the word pain because they don't want to use the pain. It's un- discomfort. And so we're, we're like six months in, and I, and I thought, you know what? I, I don't know if I want Judy to have to go through this. Too late. Too late. She's pregnant, she's going to have a baby. Um, and so it's going to have that When it talks about the birth of sin, the birth of sin, there's the language of inevitability that he uses. Conceiving produces birth. After conceiving, it's birth. After desire is conceived, after desire happens, it births sin. And as sin, when it's full grown, it gives birth to death. And the end result of this process is, Unlike human pregnancy, it's not life, but it's death. Death. It brings death, letter D. It's, it's giving birth to death. The picture of death being born as a result of our actions. It's a, it's a graphic picture of, of what happens in our hearts when we give in to the desires. And it conceives sin, and it gives birth to death of all things. Which is separation from God. God. And we say, am I the victim here? No. You did it. Now that's the bad, bad news. Am I the victim here? No. Is there help for me? Yes. Yes. The, the great thing about the Bible is that it gives you the bad news and it always gives you the good news. Okay? The bad news is what we've seen. The birth of death is not contrasted with the birth of life. Okay? So we've gone through this sequence of, of dealing with the birth of sin, which brings death. And now we have the birth of life. James 1, 17 to 18 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to do what? To give us birth. Okay, here's a new birth. To give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Birth of death. Birth of life, give us new birth. In contrast to people's desires, which bring spiritual death, God, by his own free will, chose to bring us life, to bring us life. This is the birth of life. Now, four facts about life that we find in this passage, four facts. Letter A, God gives perfect gifts. God gives perfect gifts. It says, given comes from above. We don't earn this gift. It's a gift. We don't earn this birth, I mean. It's a gift. Ephesians 2.8.9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift. The gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. Now, James gives us a lot of ethical guidelines. And we'll look at these as we go through. In fact, there are so many ethical guidelines that Martin Luther... Uh, the founder of the Lutheran movement, basically, he did not want James to be in the Canon of Scripture because he said there's too much legalism in there. <laughs> but there isn't. There's a bunch of grace, too. There's a bunch of grace, too. But James has a lot of ethical behavior things, and we'll be talking about that. But here he's talking about a gift. A gift, for, and we do not earn God's favor. It's a gift. The perfect gift means it's it's. Without strings attached. There's no mixed motive. So when God gives us this birth of new life. There are no strings attached. Which means you can't earn it. You can't pay for it. You can't do anything. Basically it's just receiving a gift. Perfect gift says there's no mixed motives. Now as, as much as we like to give gifts. Some of you probably have the gift of gift, gift giving. Um, and that's awesome. Some people that's, that's your love language. Is giving gifts. And, But, but as much as I have tried and as much as I've seen my whole life there it's impossible to have absolutely perfect motives when we give a gift you know we give something and we go oh I I look pretty good there (laughs) or they're going to think well of me or um, I think they might like me more or whatever there there there's always some mixed motive when we give with God there are no mixed motives it's a perfect gift this gift given to us by God, the new birth, is perfect and totally selfless. Only God can give this kind of gift. He gives perfect gifts. So this, this new birth that he wants to give us is a perfect gift. It's also, let B, be, God gives light. God gives light. God's nature is light. God's nature is moral goodness. When it says it comes from the father of lights, mean, it means that God fathered the lights of the universe. When you look at the billions of stars, the moon, sun... All of the things around us are planets. That's what God did. He's a father of lights. Romans one twenty says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen being understood from what he has made so that men are without excuse. We understand a little about who God is through nature. God made it all. And critical to our belief is that God is the author of life. God is the author of life of light, all life, and he's changeless, he's changeless, verse 17, who does not change like shifting shadows, now the only thing constant in our world today, I mean, when we look at our world and everything is happening, the only thing constant is change, except God, God is changeless, this world changes rapidly, I mean, 25 years ago, to browse was to shop, not explore the internet. Phones were stationary, not cellular. A mouse was a rodent we trapped, a virus was something we caught, a tweet was what a bird did, and Twitter was nervous laughter. A pop-up was an ice cream treat, and songs had to be played on a record, tape, or CD, not on a file. Send me that file. That would have been totally incomprehensible to us 25 years ago change in the middle of our change something needs to be changeless and that is God he's not disposable he's not outmoded or outdated we can't say God oh he's so five minutes ago Jesus Christ is the same yesterday today and forever so God gives light he's constant and he's changeless and then there is truth God gives truth James 1:18 says he chose to give us birth through the word of truth. He chose to give us birth. This is the new birth that he is giving to each one of us. We had the birth of death, now we have the birth of light. John 14:6, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Anyone who has seen me, Jesus said, has seen the Father. The new birth comes through truth. Truth. Am I the victim here? No, my actions brought death. God's actions brought life. And finally, we see that God gives new birth. He says that we might be a kind of first fruit of all he created. We are the first fruits, the most honored and sacred in God's eyes. We don't use that word very often. I, I'm not sure if, if people in agriculture use first fruits, but first fruits are part of the harvest that the Israelites brought to God. They were the, the first and the best fruits and the, the produce of the land, whatever that was. Set aside, it was special. It was, it was the very first, it was the very best. And that's who you are. You, when you receive this new birth, you are the first fruit giving new birth and eternal life. John 3, 16 and 17 said, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Am I the victim here? God knew our nature. God knew our bent to evil. He knew our, we were baited by sin. We were birthed in death. He did not send Jesus to condemn us, but to save us. Yes, we have to admit we have a problem. We can't cry the victim or blame everyone for our sin. We must take responsibility, admit what we've done, admit that we cannot attain this life on our own, that what the truth of the word of God tells us, that I'm not the victim here, Jesus became the victim for us. He died on the cross and paid for our sins so that we can no longer blame. We don't need to blame anyone else. Our personal responsibility in this whole relationship with God is to accept responsibility for our actions. That's that's the first thing. God, I admit I fell short. I, I sinned. I did this. And then accept Jesus' payment for our actions. He died to pay for our sins, every one of our sins. Not most of them, not all, but that one that we keep holding on to. No, all of our sin. And then accept his gift of forgiveness in eternal life. Some people say, you know, it sounds too easy. I've had people say, it can't be that simple. Well, Jesus did all the heavy lifting. Jesus did all the heavy lifting. It's up to us to just accept his gift. Where are you today? Are you the victim here? Or are you the recipient of God's gift? A recipient of God's forgiveness? Free gift of eternal life through Jesus. It's there for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that even though some of these images and some of this language is confusing at times, we just thank and praise you that you give us this this picture of the inevitability of, the, of, of death through sin and our na- true nature, but how you have a plan and you have a gift of eternal life for everybody. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that, that if there's anybody here t- today that you, Lord Jesus, would speak to them and help them understand and realize that they can have that gift of eternal life in Jesus. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you've given that to each and every one of us, free, because it's paid for by you. And we thank and praise you for that. In Jesus' name. Let's stand, shall we? I want to just... It's been a year since we shut down. We were asked about a year ago to help flatten the curve. And so we basically did not have service for two months. When they gave us permission, we said we're going to just kind of um, open up and let people make decisions as they're comfortable. And uh, we started the first Sunday, we started live service. We had the worship team up here and the tech team in the booth and the coffee team in the lobby. We were really distanced socially. And uh Next Sunday, a few people more came in, and a few more at a time, and pretty soon uh, people came in, and we just basically said, as you're comfortable, uh, if you need to stay at home, and there are those that needed to stay at home because of their health issues or dangers, and they stayed at home. There are those that stayed in the parking lot, and some of them have now come in. Um, I just want to thank you for helping us navigate this last year. Um, You know, I, I feel like we're on the Far end of that, I think. We're, I think it's pretty much almost over. Let me let me just give you a couple of stats. I got these from the uh, uh, the news news site online. State of Wisconsin, in the state of Wisconsin, and and we can give glory to God. And we can just thank Him or whatever. In the state of Wisconsin, they they did hundreds of thousands of COVID tests, and the positive rate of all those hundreds of thousands was two point one percent. Okay. which meant almost 98% of the people that wanted to have a COVID test, they didn't have it, okay? They might have had another flu. They might have had something else. But only 2.1% had COVID, okay? Of that 2.1%, and I don't want to minimize that people have died. We have friends that died from COVID. They either died from COVID or with COVID. But of those 2.1%, 1.15% died. 1.15% of that 2.1% died, either with COVID or from COVID. I don't think we're going to know for a while. Which means 98.85% people that got COVID survived. Some of them didn't even know they had symptoms. I mean, it's just, it's pretty amazing. Um, and and so I think that that I know that we're looking at that, and I think everybody's taking it serious. But I'll just say, and this is just my opinion, okay, it's time to get back to normal. You know, that's, that, that's the, those two statistics that are from our state. And our state, I think, did a really good job of navigating. This church did a great job of navigating. It's time to get back to normal. That's all I can say. So And we can just praise the Lord for life. So, there are some here that got COVID. You don't know how you got it, but some of you have it had it, and you survived, and you did fine. Others didn't do so well. But just be glad and be rejoicing. Let me just say we can't live in fear. Okay, we got to live with faith. So, it's time to go forward. That's just my encouragement for that. And I know I'm talking to the choir, preaching to the choir here, but anyway. So, I'm going to step outside and uh, and do the benediction. Hey everybody. Let's do the benediction. May the love of God the Father and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship and power of the Holy Spirit be and abide with all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Everybody honked amen. All right. (laughs) Yes.